Each episode of Exploded Drawing is a story of discovery, ostensibly of a record, but scratch the surface and what you're also getting is a story of self-discovery, of the discovery of personhood. In this episode, I talk to Elizabeth McQueen, whose journey into music, which includes eight years in the touring juggernaut Asleep at the Wheel and a current incarnation as broadcaster on Austin's KUTX radio, began in suburban Maryland in the early 90s, as she ganged together with her best girlfriends to swap cassettes of the records that were going to change their lives. The starting point for our discussion is PJ Harvey's 1992 debut, Dry, a record that ignited something in Elizabeth at the age of 15. But as we go, we'll talk about all manner of things. The expectations of women in music, Riot Girl, Songs in Five, Unshaven Armpits, and the conditions and circumstances that inspired both of us to reach into the culture of music. So, Exploded Drawing. Today, my guest is Elizabeth McQueen, and we're going to talk about Dry by PJ Harvey. Tell me about how you came across this record when it first appeared in your life. You know, it's interesting, because you, I had read what you wrote about Exploded Drawing, and I'm trying to think, like, how did I hear about PJ Harvey? Because I'm pretty sure it wasn't being played on the radio, it, although it's possible that maybe something was, but I don't remember hearing it on... WHFS, our local alternative radio station in yeah. Maryland. Um, right. I can't remember how I heard of PJ Harvey, but I just remember like getting a cassette tape probably of Dry and just being like, what is this? This is amazing. I was probably 15. Okay. Um, and I don't think that I'd ever heard any woman kind of like address all the like really complex, like emotional ambivalence about around like love and sex and being a woman and you know I would just listen to the whole album and like then I would take it to my friends and be like you've got to hear this this is this amazing woman PJ Harvey and you said you like you were about 15 in Maryland yeah. Maryland in the su- in like in a suburb like a serious okay so you're still at suburb. school right you're still at school yeah if I think back to how when I was 15 I wasn't my ears weren't really open to to anything like that really so uh, do you just remember it in particular opening your ears to kind of this kind of music or was it like one record that sort of came out of nowhere probably when I was about 13 and an older friend of mine Karen had introduced me to like non-pop music like stuff that you wouldn't hear on pop radio which is pretty much what I had listened to up until that point so she hipped me to like Depeche Mode and The Cure which I had never really heard before um and that was, I think that kind of opened my ears to like a different way of listening or listening for different things. Um, but I had never, and I guess 90, if this is 92, so maybe Nirvana had already come out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's 90, right? That's the key date when we look back in a way, isn't it? Like was Nevermind out or not? Nevermind came out in 91. Yeah, 91. So all that kind of, you know, angry guitar music that became like pop music yeah would have been there would have that moment had happened i remember hearing uh smells like teen spirit for the first time and in like the car with my dad and being like 
what is this? And then they played it on the announcements right. in my school. And I was like rocking out to it or something at my desk. And this girl in class <laughs> was like. Almost like the, 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 the Smells Like Teen Spirit like video where like they're in the gym and yeah totally i think i was more just nodding my head to yeah, the music this is the quiet the quiet rock the quiet rock and i this girl was like have you heard the song before like she had you know her mind was being blown and i was trying to be all cool like yeah you know yeah yeah i've heard this before once in my dad's car you know but i kind of think that's interesting because there's a lot of parallels between the pj harvey of that time mm-hmm. and nirvana three piece stripped down you know, it's very kind of like first person. Yeah. And very like melodic. You know what yes. I mean? Like that. I mean, at the same time that PJ Harvey was happening, like I think Riot Girl stuff was going on. Yeah. But I never really like well, I was gonna got ask, into it because yeah. it, it wasn't melodic enough. Like I just couldn't, I just couldn't dig on the melodies. You okay. Know? You know, that parallel with Nirvana is, struck me as being quite, quite um, appropriate, partly because... After this, she made an even more stripped-down record with Steve Albini, right, which yeah. is, the st- is the same thing that Nirvana did. And apparently the second one that mm-hmm. he did with her was the one that, that he played to, to Kurt and said, this is what I can do. This is the kind of sound I've been doing recently. So there's a lot of parallels there. And yeah, maybe I think it's a good point that maybe my ears were like ready for PJ Harvey because I had heard Nirvana, which... Like, I liked Nirvana. I thought they were good, but I was never, like, a huge, like, yeah. Nirvana fan. Yeah. And I think at the, around the same time, like, Alanis Morissette mm-hmm. was happening, which I totally always thought was just, like, complete ridiculousness. Okay, so you, like, didn't, you didn't buy into that. You didn't have a stage where you were listening to things like that, and then PJ Harvey comes along and you're... Like, okay, this is more like it. You just went straight to that. I mean, I think like that one, it was that, that one hit that Alanis Morissette had where she wrote it about the guy from Full House. You want to know? I'm here to remind you yes. that song. <laughs> you want to know, yeah. So like, I think I, I heard that. And at first it was like, oh, this is cool. And you can't see her face in the video. And she's very mysterious. But then I think I found out, and I was never like a liner note reader, but I found out that the guy who produced that record was the same guy who produced Wilson Phillips. And then I was like, that's not, <laughs> that's not, cool. I, that's not real. That's, um, but PJ Harvey seems like just like, I'd never heard a woman talk about stuff like that yeah. ever. And it was, a you know, and you're 15 and it's all this stuff that you're just starting to feel like, you know, a lot of PJ Harvey songs I feel are like, I want you to want me. I fucking hate you. But at the same time, I want you like this, kind of way that I think girls kind of struggle with, you know, when they get to the age where they're starting to figure out the whole sex thing. In a way, it seems like it was maybe even slightly misconstrued. People imagine that she was like a psycho or something. And, you know, there's this song on um, Rid of Me, which is called Legs, and it's about cutting off the legs of a lover. And and she said later, you know, this is all symbolic. It's not supposed to be literal. But... I seem to remember Polly Harvey was on the cover of The Enemy around the time of this record with her arms sort of up, like, and her unshaven armpits oh, on, the yeah. Cover, yeah. <laughs> on the cover of The Enemy. And I think, you know, that was obviously clearly, like, a bit risque for oh, the yeah. music press at the time. And the funny I thing is... I think unshaven armpits are still a big right. fuck you. Like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And anyone who goes there is kind of pilloried, aren't they? Oh, you yeah. You're, not allowed to, you're still not allowed to do that sort of thing. So yeah, that would have been shocking, and I think she, she says she wanted to write music that was shocking, 
even to her, let alone anyone else. You know, she wanted to shock herself. Yeah. What I find interesting is that, you know, you were in Maryland. That's not far from D.C. where Riot Girl actually was happening. Yeah. And if you read the history of it, Kathleen Hanna basically stopped being like a performance word artist and decided to form a band because she thought like politically it was going to get her further mm-hmm. and moved to D.C. and started up this Riot Girl house and, you know, that was a decision yeah. that she made. So that was all happening at that time. And this record comes in the midst of that. And I think it would have been very easy for journalists to just lump it in and go, oh, here's another kind of angry woman who hates men. It's it, it's that agenda, isn't it? It's like, yeah. But she was very clear. I mean, she was very, PJ Harvey was very clear, like, I'm not a right girl. And I actually mm. prefer the company of men, which is an interesting thing because that's like a really common weird thing that women do where they go like, I I like men better than women. I don't know, maybe (laughs) she did. But also like everyone she was trying to emulate was a man. So there was, you know, I think it was like Howlin' Wolf and Tom Waits. Um, Nick Cave. And Nick Cave, yeah, who she later dated, I guess. Wow. But yeah, I always thought the difference was like Riot Girl is so much more punk rock and just like explosive and pj harvey songs are very like constructed i mean they're they're a little wild um but they're very like party and there's a lot of weird uh, the more that i listened to dry i was like i didn't realize at the time how many like rhythmic things happen like time signature stuff and like changing stuff up i i don't think that i had the the vocabulary for it at the time no and, um, I, and that's very much on my list of things that i noticed when listening closely to this stuff there's at least two songs on this record in five yeah and a, a lot is of, in five i was like is, is this yeah is hair this in five hair is in five and water is in five and i kind of ended up looking at dry and rid of me as two sides of the same kind of thing They're like a pair, these records. And again, that record has a lot in five and in six. And yeah, you're right. That wouldn't have been a right girl thing in the same way. I I think it might have been accidental in places. But I think that's what's interesting about this record. Even when you are not listening for that stuff and aren't aware of it, there's something a bit odd about it. It's a little bit angular and slightly awkward, right? And, and it's supposed to be. And she's like a musician. I mean, what what struck me is like PJ Harvey is like she's a musician. She knows she plays lots of different instruments. She's probably pretty well versed in like theory. And when you listen to the record, it's like I I can hear that a mm. lot. It doesn't seem like someone just kind of making music. Mm. It seems very like thought through. Um, like dress too. I I've always loved dress. And like the yeah. drum beat on dress, like I was like, what is he doing? Is he playing like on the ands or like that boom, boom, yeah, boom? Yeah, it starts like on the offbeat, doesn't it? Yeah, it starts on the offbeat, but it does. And then the guitar comes in and does it later. I don't know. It's just, it just made me really happy. I find it somehow more, in in a way, it's more successful as like angry music than arguably what Riot Girl was trying to do. Because it's so punchy and it's odd that it draws you in and it doesn't kind of whack you over the head with like a cliche it's very it draws you in it's kind of mysterious and I think that's you know to catch people's attention is like a lot more powerful right I think it's emotional center is really different from Riot Girl too like PJ Harvey wasn't trying to 
create a feminist manifesto or like smash the system, like smash the system or yeah. be a revolutionary. But she was doing something like she was really trying to write. And I think I read in some article cause I was reading, you know, like all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I'll read a bunch of articles about PJ yeah. Harvey. Um, you know, she said she was at that point, she was really into like, look, these songs are like, I am inserting myself into the, the first person in these. They're very mm-hmm. like close, you know, they're very personal. They're, I don't have any third person distance on them. Um, which I think she was just trying to get really like honest about different things she was feeling about, you know, dresses. It has such a good arc, you know, yeah. from like trying to impress a man and like put on this dress. And then by the end of the evening, you feel kind of like dirty and filthy mm-hmm. and you're falling over. And, you know, what is that whole journey like? And I think that's what makes it really successful is that politically, I think you're either wanting a revolution or you're not you know what i mean like if you want a revolution it's going to speak to you if you're not really into it if you're like 15 and like worried about who's going to ask you to the dance yeah even know what revolution is supposed to be yeah like aspire to it exactly yeah dress definitely stood out for me when i listened back to this so i think we should listen to dress oh my gosh yes
Okay, so I just want to talk about how that sounds because like there's a 90s sound to that. Oh yeah. Uh, but I'm just curious, like what the effect of that was on your kind of 15 year old ear. Was this something like? Did it? Did this steer you into music? What was the impact? I think when you're that age, you're kind of looking for a way to talk about your feelings. You're not a kid anymore. You're like becoming an adult. And what does that mean? And everything's getting very complex. And you're also, I mean, I think as white American, young suburban women, anger is not like what you're taught to really foster, okay. you know? So this was a, this was just a really great outlet for me to hear something and to really feel all kinds of emotions around these mm. things. I mean, I think it's a really complex, every song has a really interesting arc to it. It's not just like angry. Yeah. It's like angry, but uh, the first person is a very needy character, the way that we all are. Um, I never musically wanted to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it was a little too honest and it's only recently that I've wanted to really like try to plumb the depths and actually say how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. But she was young when she did this. She was like 22, 20, 22 or 23. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine being there at 22 or 23. It's. Do you think that at that age, it really helps to find something that articulates how you're feeling because yes. you can't, because you ha you're not quite there. And so a record like this does some of the emotional work or it sort of draws you towards identifying the things that are kind of totally. bugging you, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it really gave voice to a lot of feelings mm. that I was having. And and then I was happy to share it with my friends. Or it may have been that my friend Desiree was the person who introduced it to me. I had like four really close friends in high school, and we all were very feminist and very okay. like uh, kind of angry young women, but very smart, but very cool. So you didn't start a band. That sounds like a, a band waiting to happen. Then. No, we didn't start a band. I was... <laughs> I kind of joined a band maybe a little after this, but it was not this kind of music at all. No, okay. But I really like, yeah, I just remember, I remember being at like an amusement park, like Six Flags or something, maybe on a choir trip. Okay. But having this cassette and listening to it and like passing it around, like you guys have to hear this song. It may have been, it may have been drier. It may have been rid of me. I can't remember okay. what record it was. The, the two records have a lot of similarities. I would imagine that like it would have been easier to play something like this to to your friends or or anyone than some of the stuff on Rid of Me, which is like really in your face. This this has has like you said, it's got the melodies in it. Yeah. And there's a there's a good article on the Guardian. Somebody who's who's a fan of this record, uh, who's written when I'm not in the mood to give a toss about lyrics or meanings, I just flail along with the chugging guitar and stonking bridge. Yeah. It's like. Dress is a great example. It's just got the way the chorus works. It's just got a nice kind of uplift to it. It's what they call accessible, right? But in a strange way, like it's strangely accessible in that way that like the Pixies are accessible where you wouldn't necessarily like yeah. think that they would be, but they've just got really great melodies and cool guitar parts and I which, don't know. Which is maybe, again, it's the time. You know, you had the benefit of punk and things that came after punk and an extra 10 years of pop music that was happening and MTV and a lot of people starting to make records at this time seems like they were drawing as much off pop music as like their punk records or their parents punk records or whatever it was yeah the Nirvana's the obvious example of just fusing that pop music with guitars one of the things that struck me when I was listening to this record the way it's produced how you know the drums are quite 
prominent and it's it's quite raw sounding, not as raw as Rid of Me. But I just wonder how you'd produce a record like this now. I don't think you'd do it in the same way. Like this is of its time in in some ways, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we we talked a little bit when we were listening to Dress about the cello on the record, mm-hmm. which I don't think like made it into the live show maybe, or maybe it did. But the cello, I feel like it's such a 90s, like, <laughs> like it's a rock band, but let's add some cello right. to it. You know, that's a very 90s touch. Yeah. Um, yeah, it struck me that this record, it's so like the vocals are mixed so far back and mm-hmm. the drums are so far front and the guitars, there's obviously two guitars, but they seem to almost meld into one mm-hmm. in some points because they're kind of, they kind of have a very similar tone. Yeah, I don't know how you produce a record like this. Well, I, th- I feel now. like you, you wouldn't produce it in inverted commas. You wouldn't be so concerned about that kind of rumbling live band sound. And I think that's a really interesting thing about this period, PJ Harvey, is that it's a really strong rock band sound that they had that propelled them, I think, in those records. Now, you might have the, the ideas, you might write them on guitar, but I think you'd be a lot happier with just like going you know, the Lana Del Rey route with it and just sort of having like a beat behind it and some, you know, some weird stuff that you've programmed in your computer because you're 22 and that's all you, you do all your... Right, I guess, yeah. <laughs> if you were 22, I was I was thinking like, well, if I did the record, like you'd try to get a live band sound if you wanted that. Yeah. Although it seems like that that's, I don't know, less and less important to listeners to people, these days. To the kids. <laughs> to the kids. The kids don't know. The kids can create all this stuff on their phones, I guess. But... Yeah, I guess if you were 22, like, would it occur to you to try to get that? I don't know. There, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of kids who are going back, like, yeah, there's heavy defi- analog. Yeah, you know? I mean, there's definitely a lot of music that's kind of influenced, in a way, by this sort of sound, and that, and that harks back to it. For a major label, definitely you wouldn't be trying to make a record that sounded like this. Uh, but this was not on a major label. And was this even... Pro- did they self-produce this, or was this produced... I t- I- well, I know that in the UK they signed to Two Pure, which is a small label, but I think, I don't know if it was at the time part of Beggar's uh, group, but um, wasn't she on Island in the States? She was, but that was only after Dry. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I don't know. Then maybe it was, uh, I think of this sound as needing a little bit of a budget even back then to kind yeah. of get that live room. So you've got to book that live room or, or whatever. But I guess that the band were that good. That's the thing about this band is that they were this good. They were, you put them in a room and it's not going to sound bad, those three people. And we should give a nod to the drummer Rob Ellis and, and Steve Vaughan is the bass player. Yeah. A great band that operated from the beginning of what PJ Harvey is through to the end of like Rid of Me, that record and tour. And I think then sort of split off acrimoniously from, from her. There's a, a whole story on that which we won't get into but like it's all online kids yeah <laughs> um it sounds <laughs> yeah great. it sounds like the they can do it live sounds great and yeah. they do on this record but when you listen to some of the the demos that that polly did on her own it's just as confrontational and kind of big sounding that's the, that's that's what's interesting about especially the four track demos which are actually all for rid of me but these two records were written very close together but it's her and an electric guitar in a room and this kind of guttural screams that come in every, every now and again. It's her just like pushing herself to like the limits of kind of her voice box and like abilities. And that's just as big sounding. So I think that's probably testament to how 
her career has gone on from there because give her a guitar and put her in a room with one microphone and it's going to be compelling. It's going to be, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I haven't listened to the demos and now I really want to go and like check them out because, because I think that was her whole thing was I read somewhere that she, when she made dry, she was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to make another record. So I'm going to make like the record that I want to make and totally push myself. Like, I don't want to make a pleasant record. It's not going to be, and it, it, and it's not like a pleasant record to listen to all in one swoop. You're right. Like you kind of, after a while, you like feel a little uh, knocked about, I think, <laughs> you know? Like, but I, you know, I listened to it just on repeat as a kid. Yeah. From this record, she then went even more confrontational and kind of stark. That's a good way to describe Rid of Me. It's such a stark, powerful, stripped back record the sound of the band even more, you know, at the front of the mix. Yeah. I was going to say less cello, but there's that one track on Rid of Me, which is a, a sextet playing man-size, all in sort of discords, which oh, is really yeah. on its own on that record in terms of the sound. No, no, the rest of that record is very like a rock band playing in a room. I'm struck by how, for the band and for her, she felt the need to kind of like make it more extreme for one more record before everything flips after that record and she does To Bring You My Love, which is a, is a very different sounding record. So clearly she had further to go in terms of a stripped down kind of snarling, angsty yeah. tone, which is what Rid of Me sounds like. So there was more of a journey for her in that direction before she changed direction. And really once she flips, it's like, I'm kind of out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, that maybe that's it. It's like she really did go as far to the edge as she could with this kind of band setup. Yeah. And, and there's probably, yeah, I mean, there's probably not much further you could have taken it. And anyone who's done anything creative knows that after you've done something for a while, you're like over it. Absolutely. Never want to do it again. I mean, this is fascinating, really. You know, I'm such a student of In Utero, which is the Albini Nirvana record, mm-hmm. where they did exactly that. After Nevermind, I want to make a more dirty, more on-the-edge sounding record where you go in a room with Steve Albini and that's the best way to achieve that. But, you know, of course, we wonder what would have come next after that. Yeah. I think there's plenty of people who would say Kurt Cobain was ready to, like, make something a lot softer sounding and less angry. Yeah. But that's a, an unknown, isn't it? Polly Harvey definitely did that, and I think... I, I really admire that she took it as far as it could go for that record because, again, you listen to Rid of Me, that's an even less kind of... It's that's less more, forgiving. Less forgiving, more of a like extreme ride in terms of listening experience. So on that, we should listen to something from Rid of Me, maybe, so we hear a bit of that. Yeah. We'll listen to Dry, not from the album Dry, but from the album Rid of Me. <laughs> Again, I thought it was 
band should have a record like this where they're put on the spot and they play live and and you hear what actually the band sounds what like you can really most do bands it. would run aghast from the idea that you can get better results recording that way or that you're good enough to do it because i don't think a lot of bands are good enough to to sound this good with just in the room i mean you know even with these records i know they would have gone back and and tidy bits up or, or whatever yeah. but I'm all for every band doing at least one record like this where they they hear really what the band sounds like and it's an honest sort of depiction of course once you've done it you don't want to do it again and I think probably that was the case for for Polly Harvey having done and gone this far with this sort of sound there's what more do you do yeah what, what, it, what else do you it's, do it's you know she clearly wasn't going to keep writing songs like this forever there's a limit to how many songs you can write in this with this voice and this kind of yeah, spirit. I, you know, and you're you're 22, 23 years old. Yeah. You're going through this thing. You write all these songs. You push yourself to the limit, which is what you want to do, and then, and then all of a sudden you're you've played the songs for two years. You're 25 years old. Your whole life experience is different. You know, yeah. I, it makes a lot you've of sense. You've been on tour for would, two years. You now loathe these songs, like never want to hear dry again. I don't know if that happened to her or not, but I mean, it seems like it did because she just went like, that is gone and this is Yeah, 
I remember at the time being kind of faintly sort of scandalised when she came back without a band backing her and kind of wearing like a weird leotard and like <laughs> badly applied face makeup and going, hang on, this this wasn't the PJ Harvey I remember. This is something totally new. I remember like feeling faintly sort of wronged as a bystander to that. I mean, I was wrong. She was right, of course. But I remember that was a very jarring look that and sound she came back with. And it's also like a very, you know, as an artist, that's an actual risk that you make yourself very vulnerable when you don't come back and give people what they expect. I mean, she could have just played Dry and, you know, songs from Dry and Rid of Me. She could still be doing that. And yeah, and, people and would have been very happy with it. That's right. And we talked a bit about, again, the production on, on this stuff, the sounding of its time. And she could easily have toned it down and continued on in the vein of, you know, the Tanya Donnellys and the Kim Deals and made records that sounded like that over a long period. I wonder to what extent it was the band pulling away from her or the fact that she was kind of done with this. So she didn't need to have the power of other other musicians sort of t to share it in the same way, having done these two records, that for her, the journey was about discovering what she could do, not about discovering what a trio yeah. could do, because she'd done that. So, you know, you read stories about how towards the end of this period, you know, they weren't talking and were oh, pulling yeah. away and the band were kind of looking at her wearing a feather boa on stage and sort of getting a bit more theatrical. And I wonder how much of it was just her being ready to move on yeah, as opposed I, to the normal stuff that happens in bands where you sort of just drift apart, you know. And it seems like she's just that kind of artist who really, and you know, every record she's made since has been a little different and, yes. a, and a take you know, something different. So it seems like she's the kind of artist who just kind of, she does it and she goes for it and mm. she does it fully. And then it's like, okay, next. Like, which what is, am I going to explore next? Yeah, which is why Rid of Me is sort of an interesting record in that she wasn't ready to move on straight away from this, yeah. from the dry sound. She had more to do with it. I think it's sort of transitional, isn't it? You sort of explore it as far as it can yeah, go. Yeah, you take it as far as you can and then... You're done. Now, in 92, how old were you? Were you, was this a record you were listening to? I, it's funny because Riot Girl sort of paradoxically really chimed with me. I remember being 13 and, and listening to my brother discover punk music through the bedroom wall and just going, this is really abrasive and horrible. <laughs> why, why is he listening to this? So when, in 92, 93, when I was 16, 17, and things like Huggy Bear came along, I was totally drawn into that. It was my punk. Was, this felt like something new that wasn't for my brother because he'd already got punk. And a lot of my friends weren't really into to, to Riot Girl. They, was, they were listening to the pre-Britpop kind of indie stuff at that time, which I loved. But I also, I was totally drawn in by, by Riot Girl and, the, and that kind of voice. And I didn't really totally click with PJ Harvey at the time. I've come back to it and realise that I was I should have paid more attention to it because it's actually more powerful in lots of ways but I was yeah I was totally drawn in by the politics of, of Riot Girl I was going to say was it the politics that brought you into Riot Girl it felt like a new thing that hadn't happened in music and it felt like an upturning of how things were in like guitar music all these bands have been just like posing away and just being very 
macho while pretending not to be macho, the posturing of it. But this this kind of stuff was like genuinely like a new start for for guitar music. And, you know, and it, it was coupled with the vinyl culture, which I discovered right at that time. And, you know, all the Hug Your Bear stuff came out on 7-inch vinyl with like really interesting sleeves where all the lyrics were written and then like discourse and it was oh, like oh, like manifesto types yeah but kind of like a manifesto in sort of crayon and glitter like very sort of homemade diy and i i started a fanzine around that time so it was like it it to me felt a lot more like genuine diy kind of movement that felt more honest you did a music fanzine like a zine yes well it was what was it named it was called <laughs> It was called Conform or Die. It was music and politics and art mixed together. And it was inspired by the Riot Girl thing in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, a, you know, but not just those bands, that kind of lineage of like Sonic Youth and, you know, more lo-fi sort of DIY stuff. And of course, listening to John Peel, which was, it just felt like a whole culture. So yeah, I didn't really go to the shows. I didn't feel myself totally part of the movement because I didn't really connect with people but I did my fanzine and I swapped fanzines with people but it was all done through the mail. That whole kind of mail order fanzine world is such a cool I mean I think that kids are still trying to do it but it's totally a redundancy to do you know or like a novelty now like I'm making this physical product that you get in the mail and well as is vinyl yeah which is making a huge comeback I guess but you, you know that you don't need it to tap into the network of people because you can just go online. And the same with fanzines, you have a blog. But then you, it was no other way to connect to people. Yeah. You would go to the shows, and if you weren't doing that, this was the way to kind of connect with people who wanted to be involved in the discourse of it. It was much harder to find your tribe back then, your community of like-minded individuals. I yeah, think. and in a way, I, well, I was going to say I never did. I later I did but my best friends from like that time were all bound by music but it was like I said it was a lot more the kind of more standard indie fair of the time that that we bonded over I had this little subsection that was a bit more my stuff you know mm-hmm. I don't know why PJ Harvey sort of slipped through for me because she did pill sessions I listened to it I think just it was actually the kind of starkness of it probably put me off a bit at the time and was it maybe like you're 16 and 17 and here's this woman who's like talking about like some you know like saying things like you leave me dry or i feel like as a guy it might be harder to access that feeling because it's kind of coming at you it's kind of i mean there's a lot of stuff the that's target. very like targeted at men yeah the song i remember was 50 foot queenie that was the, the one i remember hearing a lot which um, is goes after yeah. guys you know I think the only thing that put me off at that time really was just like the blues edge of it. Like that's kind of almost like a rockabilly song or something, isn't it? 50 Foot Queenie. I haven't heard it in so long, but it's funny because she's so influenced by the blues and I guess maybe you hear it more on Rid of Me with like the slide guitar. Mm. But I actually not a huge lover of the blues. I can take it in small quantities. Yeah. Um, And I appreciate it, but it's not like something that I jam out to in my free time never and especially when I was 15 so there's some part of my brain that like even though I know that that's the influence I cannot hear it like I can intellectually hear it like if you tell me that she was influenced by these artists and trying to like kind of approach that sound I can go like yeah I I hear it but like 
really emotionally, I'm like, no, I don't hear it because I love PJ Harvey, these records, and I don't really like the blues. Well, I'm the same, but I think, I think the, the influence is very slight, but I think it was enough for me at the time. To be fair, with this record, it was slightly before when I totally got switched on to music because that happened for me in 93. So I missed this record. And Rid of Me didn't really have the big singles. 50 Foot Queenie is the only song I remember from that time. So, And it wasn't being played on the radio so much that as, as maybe it, it was here. I don't know. But I, I missed it, and it's been an education for me to listen back to this stuff because sounds, it sounds so raw and powerful and from the demos through these two records that, yeah, I, uh, I shouldn't have missed it. I had a question for you. So you're... You're at this time. You're listening to Riot Girl. Are you starting to play music? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I went to college and I tried to form a band. I couldn't find people who. What did you go to college for? I did art. Mm-hmm. I was still really shy, even when I went to college. And in my first year, I lived off campus, which really, oh yeah, really kind of set me back like a year because I didn't get in with anyone in that year. And I had a couple of friends who were in a band um, and I used to sit in on rehearsals and wait for the drum kit to like come free so I could just sit on it for like 10 minutes. Yeah, I just was very slow to get anything going. And, and by the time I, it wasn't till 99, 2000, maybe even later that I actually ended up in a band. I did a lot of playing on my own in a in a bedroom. So yeah, I was very late to the practical kind of side to it that's all I wanted to do for at that time I just wanted to be in a band that's all I wanted to do for like six years for when I discovered all this stuff that's interesting because I played music I started playing in a band when I was 16 I mean I liked being in a band and it was fun and everything but there was never like this like I want to be in a famous band like or even make money from being in a band or like it was just like, oh, yeah, being in a band, it's fun. Yeah. Playing music is fun, you know? Like, um, But I didn't play an instrument at the time, and I just kind of sang. Mm. It's like, oh, if, oh, I can sing, sure. Yeah. Everybody has a different story, right? Yeah. The PJ Harvey one is quite interesting, because she played in John Parrish's band for yeah. a little while. It's a band called Automatic Dlamini, right? D- yeah, I'm not really sure what it means. <laughs> uh, I read something where she said it was a means to an end. It got her to a point where she felt confident enough to play guitar yeah. on her own to like do something with it. So and the she, guys in her band were from that band. I think too, at I least, think, right? Yeah, at least, at least one, one of, them. of them was, yeah. So for her, it was like an apprenticeship, I think. Yeah. And, and I think you can tell from these records that she's learning as she goes, you know. She feels confident enough in her own ability to like pursue it and put the records out. Yeah, it does. It does have the sound of someone who's been standing on stage with someone else, like plotting, like when I have my band. Yeah, this is the stuff that I'm gonna write, and like I'm gonna do this differently, and I'm gonna do, you know, like dry and rid of me. That was like a two-year span or something, like two records and two years, and all the material is kind of, kind of came out all at once. Which you know maybe she it had just been building up, like a splurge, a creative splurge. Yeah. Although interestingly, she. It seems like between the two records, she had to move out of London. Uh, and I think there was a relationship breakup maybe in that time. But how she tells it, it's more about getting out of this really dingy flat in Tottenham 
which is in East London, which is still not the most amazing place to live. And in 92 probably was like even dingier, but she had to get out of this flat. She just felt totally kind of squashed by the, the space and the experience and ended up renting like a room on the coast over a restaurant and wrote all the songs for the second record in this room. Oh, wow. The change of venue kind of did the thing. Yeah. yeah. And so the four-track demos are all from that room that she she says she was, like, looking out over the water, watching people just go up and down on the, on the beach and things, and, like, just felt a release. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, even though those songs all came out in a splurge, there was also, like, a fair amount of upheaval, I think, for her in that time, too. You would hope, because those songs are pretty, like, you know, all the, all the songs are pretty... <laughs> there must be a reason. They, they, pretty, they pretty well nail upheaval, I think. Yeah, the, yeah, there must be a reason why she's screaming. The first couple of tracks on the four-track demos, this banshee wail just seems to come out of nowhere. Like, oh, and she's wow. clearly just in a room, and I just think, what were the neighbours thinking? <laughs> <laughs> The people in the restaurant kind of looking up above their heads, like, what is happening? Uh, I want to listen to one of these tracks from the four-track demos, just so we hear oh, yeah. the upheaval and the, the contrast between what is quite a well-produced sounding 90s record to what they sound like, just her in a room. Totally.
there's the there's the blues if ever i heard the blues uh, yeah like the blues of the the soul i suppose and i was just saying like how much of a kind of student of like real guitar chords that she is oh like, yeah little like seventh chords and all these like you know which we touched on very briefly but we didn't talk enough about how like complex some of this stuff is oh yeah and when you get into the arrangements on the rec- i mean that itself was like really great although those changes are so 90s like mm. you heard those changes i feel like a lot in yeah. the 90s i mean especially those arrangements are straight up like composed yeah. they're very musical well even though that's very raw and like clearly just a one take in a room just whatever comes out when you open your mouth like there's nothing accidental in certainly not in the guitar parts they're no. very well thought out and that's a thing that i I missed at the time that I'm really enjoying hearing those decisions. Yeah. And and again, if you go back to those records and the band, it's well rehearsed. Even though they say, I read an interview, like there was not a lot of debate about what their parts should be. Everything seemed to happen quite naturally. Her decisions are very clear about yeah. what parts she's going to do and how many repeats of things and to be and the guitar, and this is what the guitar is going to sound like on the verse and now we're going to bring it like on the chorus it's going to sound like this and then i think you can really hear that i think more on that song than you even hear on the recordings her really trying to push herself to and maybe past the limit there's some crazy shit that happens on that track like even at one point it sounds like she goes for something and she can't quite hit it but then she turns it into something like really whether you're a singer or whatever it is that you do and you're you're attracted to music the success is partly the accidents and hearing something in the accidents like capitalizing on those things and just letting them be the creative act and of course let's not forget that there was cello on that track which we we decided must have been overdubbed yeah i can't imagine there was a cellist in the room like playing along with her but clearly she had the demo and thought i want to have cello on on the demo so there, there was a decision being made there um who were like polly harvey's contemporaries who else were doing this because you mooted the idea of doing exile in guyville by liz fairwright as as for this which i think is a pretty similar maybe like thing that was happening in america at the same time pj harvey was doing her thing although liz fair was tending more towards like kind of a indie rock sound i mean especially exile in guyville it's like such a kind of stripped down record she can't really sing nor Mm. can she really play guitar which was very much what indie rock was all about i mean now indie rock is like highly produced and when i was a kid and you said indie rock it was like a bunch of people who don't really know how to play playing music yeah and that's what that's definitely what punk rock was. yeah and i think she did that but just with these really accessible poppy songs Mm. it's Um, also it's also got that same pj harvey thing where she's really talking about being a young woman and some ambivalences it's not as much about like heavy sex stuff which i feel like pj harvey is very like vagina centered like she taught there's a lot of like yes there's a lot of talk about like what goes on and there's blood and there's like you leave me dry um and of course the the sheila and a gig which upon looking into this the sheila and a gig is a kind of celtic carving where the the lady parts are quite prominent, let's say. In the, okay. The funny thing is, the first word in my notes f- on this record is dirty. That's, oh, yeah. That's the word that I started off with. It's a dirty sound, and she's writing about things that people don't really talk about. Yeah. Which I think was why it connected with so many people, because you just, you ache to hear someone 
talk about, mm. you know, vaginas. I, 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 I had a vaginal pride club when I was in. Uh, like, is that a, was that what it was called? It was called the vag, <laughs> the vaginal pride committee. It was like, yeah, wow, really? my, I, yeah, wow. my, my three friends and I read like some study that said like 70% of women think that their vaginas are disgusting. You know, we're like 15. That's a travesty. We need to start a vaginal pride committee. And we came up with all That's these. That's awesome. We mostly just came up with slogans and my okay. friend Desiree made some t-shirts. Did you ever read that Jermaine Greer piece? And I'm going to use a dirty word here, listeners. It's called Lady Love Your Cunt. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't. There was a band called Smash in the UK who were like around this era that that referenced that piece. And it really is what it says. It's like a, it's a celebration of that part of the, yeah. the anatomy. And it's written very directly and it's kind of you know it has a lot of similarities to what was being sung about in the in the riot girl stuff and it and it has a lot of similarities to the pj harvey stuff i would have thought you might have come across that in your vaginal pride club but no i think we were just instinctually like hey wait a second these things are awesome so you want to hear some of our slogans yes okay don't ignore us clitoris (laughs) vagina is for lovers Okay. And uh, my boyfriend at the time came up with United Pals of Birth Canals, which was a good one. I like how these are all like, they all rhyme and yeah. they're snappy. Oh, the slogan. You got to get a slogan. It's, it's a badge or a little like pennant. Yeah, we should things. have made buttons at the time or something, but we didn't, we didn't think anyone would you know, want to join the club. But now I feel like there should be a vaginal pride committee. As a woman who grew up in the 90s, like there was a lot of, oh, were a lot of women trying to really like, put it out there in a very like unapologetically feminist way like whether it was riot girls or pj harvey or tori amos even or like there was all the lilith fair stuff i mean there were a lot of women just putting it out there and i don't see that as much now like there's a huge backlash i think of like young women wanting to call themselves feminists. no one seems to want to do that anymore strangely Mm. i don't understand I'm not really sure why, and maybe there, maybe it's happening, and I'm just not seeing it. But like a lot of things that were a lot more black and white, it seems in the '90s. Yeah, there's it's a lot grayer now, isn't it? The spectrum of grey, and so it's harder to paint your colours to mast. You're somewhere on a spectrum, but like maybe because of social media and all the other ways that you sort of have to disseminate what you do, you can't be as sort of one-dimensional and represent a single view of politics or femininity or, or... Or maybe because things are so fractured, it's it's actually in some ways harder to create some kind of weird cohesive movement. Yeah, and I, I think... I don't know, around something like that. If you, if you go back to 92-ish, there was a scene. It, it was a loose scene, but it was a scene. And you don't have that anymore. You, you go straight to the internet to find the people that you have something in common with. And you don't end up forming a band that's relative to what's local to you and what the, the feeling in the air is locally right. in the same way anymore. And, of course, you have... The history of music is available to you at a click. So you're not sharing records in to, into a group in the same way and drawing inspiration in a similar way from a bunch of records that maybe you would have done at the time. Yeah. It's the problem of too much information. Like, I don't know. I mean, you have kids. I have kids. Like, Mm -hmm. my kids, there's no, like, I hear a song on the radio and I have to go into the record store and sing it to the clerk at the record store (laughs) to try to figure out, like, 
what it is because I can't seem to hear it anymore and they're not playing it. It's, mm. You can remember three or four words from the song. You type it into Google and like... Or you can Shazam it with your phone and find out what it is as it's playing. Right, yeah. Yeah. But PJ Harvey remains very cool. That's true. And we hope there'll be another record in the not-too-distant future. You never know what you're going to get next with, yeah. with PJ Harvey, which is a great thing. Well, thank you for sharing your time, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Uh, thank you. Thanks a lot.